A dirge plays as Venezuelans say goodbye to Hugo Chavez, their president for 14 years, with a funeral today, Friday, March 8, 2013, in Caracas. We'll focus for most of the next 30 minutes on Chavez and what he leaves behind. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, with the death of Hugo Chavez, we'll look at his legacy in Venezuela and Latin America. But first, Kurt Devine is here with details on the death of Venezuela's president and the rest of the week's news from around Latin America. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez lost his two-year battle with cancer this week. Interim President Nicolas Maduro announced the death of the socialist leader while fighting back tears on national television. The dead cannot cry. Although we can cry in this moment, we must rise in the spirit of Hugo Chavez and the strength of our great nation. The head of the presidential guard said Chavez died of a massive heart attack just weeks after he returned from Cuba, where he underwent four cancer surgeries. Maduro was sworn in as interim president after a state funeral for Chavez. The Venezuelan constitution calls for a new presidential election since Chavez was just beginning his term. Asdrubal Oliveros is the founder of one of Venezuela's top consulting agencies, Ecoanalytica. Oliveros discussed the implications of Chavez's death from Caracas. Chavez era, pues, un líder natural. Chavez was a natural leader. I think for Maduro that will be much harder. He will have to make concessions to all social sectors, including military, radical, and pragmatic sectors, too. Maduro will likely run as the candidate of Chavez's socialist party in the upcoming election. Governor Enrique Capriles Radonsky leads Venezuela's opposition. This week, a new twist to the scandal surrounding U.S. Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey. A Dominican woman says she was paid to smear the senator's name. She says an attorney paid her to say that she worked as a prostitute and had sex with Menendez. The FBI is investigating Menendez not only about the prostitution accusations, but also about his ties to a prominent donor and physician from Florida who vacationed with Menendez in the Dominican Republic. Menendez has repeatedly denied the allegations of impropriety. Mexican drug cartels pose a daily threat to free speech. The cartels pressure journalists to self-censor, especially when reporting in areas with corrupt law enforcement. Filmmaker Bernardo Ruiz tells that story in his acclaimed documentary, Reportero. He visited Washington, D.C. this week and spoke about cartel-inspired censorship at a screening of his documentary. So the you know, attacks against the press continue, even with a new government in place. And, you know, in some cases, the attacks have been horrific in the state of Veracruz. Um, photojournalists and reporters have been uh, attacked viciously. You know, uh, some reporters were recently found in garbage bags. And so basically there has, you know, there, there is very much a climate of, you know, intimidation. Ruiz says journalists will remain vulnerable to fear-mongering from drug cartels until the Mexican government begins effectively prosecuting crimes against the media. Mexican billionaire Carlos Slim has been named the world's richest person for the fourth year in a row. 
Forbes magazine estimates Slim's net worth to be about $73 billion with assets in telecommunications, finance, construction, and retail industries. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. Before our interview segments, just a rundown on the facts surrounding Hugo Chavez, certainly one of the most significant and controversial leaders in Latin America in the past generation. With his outreach to other controversial leaders worldwide, some would say he transcended the region. Chavez ran Venezuela beginning in 1999 and brought what he called 21st century socialism to his country. He galvanized the left throughout Latin America, building stronger alliances, not just with Cuba, but with Ecuador, Bolivia, and Nicaragua, among other countries, in what became known as the ALBA Alliance. But he also built ties to the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, and gave support to those rebels who continue to fight against Venezuela's neighbor, Colombia. Chavez is known for fighting poverty. The World Bank and the Venezuelan government quibble over the details, but even by conservative estimates, he cut the number of those in poverty in Venezuela in half. His social programs are also credited with reducing illiteracy. Venezuela has one of the best rates in the region, where almost 96% of the population can read. However, Crime and corruption soared during his time in office. Venezuela has the second highest murder rate in the world. And Transparency International ranks Venezuela as the worst country in the hemisphere when it comes to corruption, tied with Haiti. Chavez is known for using Venezuela's oil wealth as political leverage throughout the region and beyond. However, despite those resources, Chavez leaves his country with debts. Venezuela has more than $110 billion of debt, that some financial analysts say is cause for concern. The country's economic problems pushed Venezuela to devalue its currency, the Bolivar, last month. It lost a third of its value against the dollar. We reached out to Daniel Hellinger to give us some perspective on Chavez and what his death means. Hellinger is a professor at Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri. He's the co-editor of the book Venezuela's Bolivarian Democracy, among many others. And he works with the Center for Democracy in the Americas on issues concerning Venezuela and other Latin American nations. Here are excerpts from our interview conducted via Skype. Hugo Chavez was on the cutting edge of a kind of sea change in Latin American politics over the last 15 years. His election in December of 1998 uh, was the first of a series of elections that brought the left back to power in Latin America. And maybe even more importantly, it brought a lot of people who were excluded from the benefits of economic growth and even excluded from really full participation in politics back into politics throughout Latin America. I'm not looking for enormous shifts in the short run. Now, in the longer run, I mean, I'm almost sure that uh, that Nicolas Maduro, the vice president, will win the snap election that has to be called under the Constitution in 30 days. Um, there'll be another election in July, and that'll be for a local election. And that'll be an interesting test of just how the Venezuelan electorate behaves without Hugo Chavez there. Nicolas Maduro, you're predicting that he would win the snap election uh, against uh, the opposition candidate Enrique Capriles Radonsky. Um Capriles has more name recognition, does he not now, after having run in the fall? Sure, but the name recognition isn't always positive. Look, look, I think I think Capriles ran a very smart campaign. I in the in back in October. I also think Capriles, you know, they've they've tried the Travisas have tried to label him very simply a rightist. Well, 
I don't think that's quite fair either. I think it may have been fair to call him that 10 years ago. But in a lot of respects, you know, in this campaign that he waged last year, he traveled the length and breadth of Venezuela. And I think Capriles has comported himself quite well in the last month or two, being being very careful in how he talks about Chavez's illness and Chavez's death. He knows that he has to get some votes from people that have voted for Chavez quite regularly in the past, but aren't necessarily 100% committed to, to the Bolivarian Revolution. Um, so he has a chance of doing that, but uh, when you kind of look at the images today in Venezuela, the emotional outpouring, it, in some ways it reminds me what looks like kind of the newsreel films from the early 50s, um, when uh, with, the, with the passing of Eva Perón, there's a kind of uh, emotional outpouring and, and almost beatification of Hugo Chavez that I'm, I'm almost certain will carry over and get Maduro elected 30 days from now. And there's not much Capriles can do about that, frankly. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that insider politics with, with Maduro. The opposition is claiming that that um, he shouldn't even be the acting president at this point. That that the head of the National Assembly should be doing that. Um, is the current Venezuelan government following the Constitution? Well, it's hard for me to see exactly how they can justify Maduro being president instead of Cabello. Um, that's an important constitutional issue. I'm not sure how much it really matters in terms of what's going on in Venezuelan politics right now. There's going to be a vote within 30 days. Um, whether it's Maduro or whether it's um, uh, Cabello, the, the president of the, the head of the National Assembly, who's the acting president, probably doesn't make a whole lot of difference. What's more important is that in the images today of the funeral of Hugo Chavez, you have Maduro marching in front of the coffin. Um, Maduro also, of course, was anointed by Chavez to be his successor. And so this also adds to what some of the folks in human rights community are talking about that the deck is stacked against the opposition of the way that that Chavez built his institutions over the past 14 years. Well, I would say the deck is stacked against the opposition, A, because a lot of the opposition still is associated in voters' minds um, with the pre-1998 era. And second of all, there's a lot of parts of the opposition that, unlike Capriles, are still, I think, dreaming of returning to the past. And uh, a good example of this was what happened yesterday when after the announcement of Chavez in the eastern, more affluent parts of Caracas, people were out celebrating, blowing their horns. Well, nothing could be more calculated to offend the majority of Venezuelans who voted for Chavez, whether they're diehard Rojo Rojito Chavistas or not, than the scenes of celebration. And you have figures uh, like the, from Primero Justicia, it used to be uh, really uh, the Capriles party, but isn't anymore, and others who have, in some sense, um, done a pretty good job of convincing ordinary Venezuelans that the programs that they've benefited from in the Chavez years um, are in jeopardy should the opposition you know, come to power. Again, I'm not so sure that Capriles himself, um, I, I think Capriles may be a smart enough politician and have learned some things over the years. I'm not so sure, so sure that Capriles himself wants to turn back the clock. But there's a lot of the opposition that does, and frankly, the opposition is looking divided at the moment. Let's talk a little bit and go back to what you were talking about with social programs. You were quoted in the Los Angeles Times of talking about that may be the greatest achievement that Hugo Chavez did was bring in social programs and change the social context for the poor in Venezuela. Right, right. and, and uh, I, a moment ago I used kind of the term inclusion there. 
Um, the social programs, you know, uh, things like healthcare, that's probably the signature program, the famous Barrio Adentro program, which uh, mostly is staffed by Cuban doctors in the hills. Well, if an opposition were to win, um, it's pretty hard to imagine that they would just suddenly send all the Cuban doctors home. There would probably be uh, massive protests in the street if they tried to do that. Um, but, you know, there's, there's pretty good documentation that these programs have made a significant difference in people's lives. Now, appropriately, there also is a criticism that says, yeah, but these programs are largely administered out of the executive branch of government. Um, or they're directly funded by the state oil company and Venezuela being an oil exporter, most of the dollars that fuels uh, the, these misiones, as they're called, comes from oil exports. The other thing I think is important to understand about them is that Chavez has, in a sense, tied them to a political mission. For example, one of the most important things that he did before the 2006 election was to stage a ma major program of giving out or, or getting people enrolled again so they would have identity cards. I mean, this is the way exclusion worked in Venezuela before Chavez. If you were a poor person and you had a child born in a clinic or maybe by a midwife in your home, that child might not ever get registered in uh, at all as somebody born and a legitimate citizen of Venezuela. Chavez not only brought services to these people, he also got them enrolled. And did that serve Chavez's political interests? Of course. Did it also serve the interests of the people living in Venezuela, of Venezuelans? Yes, it absolutely did. And that's why you see such an outpouring of emotion uh, at this moment uh, after his passing. Let's talk about that emotion, too. You made the comparison to Argentina and the Perón era. Others have also made that comparison. Chavez was the leading edge of the left, as the left's return in Latin America. Who takes up that mantle leading the left now? And You know, it, it may not be such a bad thing because it means there has to be more of a collective leadership in Latin America, and it was going that way anyway. I mean, when you look around Latin America, I mean, it's quite a, uh, let's, let's look at it this way. Um, the, Latin America was changing, new economic relationships with other parts of the world, with Asia, with Europe, with Africa. Um, increasingly kind of a sense in Latin America that they could find their own way independent of the domination of the United States. Those things were happening with or without Chavez. What I think Chavez did in many ways was provide an element of leadership. And I would point especially to UNASUR, the un Union of the, of, the, of the South American Nations. I would point to SALAC, the Association of, Caribbean, of Latin American and Caribbean States. These were initiatives that really Hugo Chavez undertook. He could not have succeeded without the support of Brazil. But, you know, CELAC in particular brought in the president of Mexico, the president of Colombia, the president of Chile, all conservatives. So, you know, we, we sometimes think that, you know, Chavez, well, not only think, it is a fact that Chavez could be a very polarizing figure. But in a sense, in terms of diplomacy in the hemisphere, he was remarkably successful. Um, and why he was successful was not because Chavez made everything happen. Things were happening, and Chavez, in a sense, seized the leadership to advance initiatives that, that have left the mark on Latin America and on hemispheric relations, really. Many people see CELAC as undercutting the Organization of American States, the OAS. Uh, do you think that without Chavez pushing CELAC, that it, it will continue to be a competing organization? the hemisphere. You probably are aware of the joke in Latin America that the other name for the Organization of American States is basically the Office of the Colonies in Washington. I think CELAC is an appropriate forum 
for the Latin Americans to sort out their own affairs as well as UNISOR. What I think would be unfortunate would be the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and the Amer Inter-American Court on Human Rights going away because I mean these this you know the court and the commission are really unique in the in the in the global world of human rights in the sense that ordinary citizens can bring complaints to the to those institutions. Um, and and I think there I don't think there's anything in CELAC or UNISOR that has the institutional capacity to address human rights concerns. Since this program is about Hugo Chavez, we, we need to point out that Chavez opposed some of those organizations that you just that's correct. put out there that, yeah, that that's why, that, that's he, he tilted at, at, at the OAS in regard to their human rights uh, rapporteur and uh, free speech rapporteur and, and others. That's, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, in some cases, he may have had some legitimate objections to the ways in which the uh, rapporteurs were conducting their work. But, you know, it, went, it, it, it was, this is, this is the, the side of Hugo Chavez that's harder to admire. I mean, tossing them out in their pajamas in the middle of the night is not the way to address those concerns. Um, now, having said that, again, we have, I, I think we have to remember that Hugo Chavez is not the only part of the hemisphere that rejects human rights concerns. Uh, Washington's record, frankly, is a little better. We may not throw people out in the middle of the night in their pajamas, but we have th little charming little practices like rendition um, that we're not held responsible for. So that doesn't make Hugo Chavez's behavior correct, but I think it also makes it a little bit harder for Washington to feel so high and mighty itself about human rights concerns. Thank you, Daniel Hellinger of Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri, and the co-editor of Venezuela's Bolivarian Democracy. It's been my pleasure. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse, where we're continuing our focus on Venezuela after the death of Hugo Chavez. Joining us now in our studio, Eric Hirschberg, the director of American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, and via long-distance line, Fulton Armstrong, a fellow at the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies and a former staffer of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Rick. Thank you very much. This week, in reaction to the death of Chavez, you combined to write about what this means for Venezuela. One aspect is uh, a new page for Venezuela's relations with the United States. What are your opinions about this? Well, I think that uh, it's going to be challenging for both uh, the new government in Venezuela, assuming that um, uh, Vice President, now President, uh, Interim President Maduro uh, is uh, elected in a, in a balloting that will take place in roughly a month. Uh, I think it will be challenging both for his new government and for the United States government to move beyond the rhetoric of confrontation that has characterized the relationship for quite a number of years now. Uh, though what we wanted to write in the, the blog post that you referred to uh, was to suggest that there this was an opportunity for both sides uh, to try to hit the reset button. But I, I agree completely. It's a chance to do the reset button. It's a little bit unfortunate that some of the first quotes, perhaps taken out of context, I don't, I don't know, from 
uh, acting president Maduro were being uh, were quite bombastic toward the United States and certainly were being seen that way in the administration at a time that perhaps advocates in the administration were saying maybe we need to start looking at reset buttons. The first signals coming out of Caracas were a rather old-style Chavez rhetoric that was um, perhaps for domestic consumption but not overly helpful in Washington to convince people that, yes, we need to take a new look. Some of those quotes and some of that rhetoric referred to blaming the enemies of the Venezuelan state for Chavez's illness, as and uh, many people online and other places have put forth these uh, scurrilous rumors that the CIA or others are behind these sorts of things. And so th- that's what you're referring to, is it not? That, yes. The, the way in which Chavez's illness was handled throughout uh, was, I think, a sign of um, some very poor decision-making uh, by the Venezuelan government. And I think that the way in which they announced his death as well was uh, unfortunate. And certainly Maduro's uh, rhetoric is not going to help um, uh, with the relationship with the United States. At the same time, I think that there are um, – it's important to look at the language uh, from the states as well. Um, and we just posted um, a, a summary of the various statements that um, governments in the hemisphere issued uh, in response to Chavez's death. And um, the one from the White House was the only chief executive that didn't begin with offering condolences. And Eric, when, uh, you, when, when you talk about posting, you're talking about posting to the AULA blog, right, which right. the center runs. Go ahead, Fulton, please. I was going to second what Eric was saying about the, the importance of the absence of a condolence. In the case of the Canadian, uh, with Prime Minister Harper's statement, there was a condolence, but it was to the people of Venezuela not to not to uh, the Chavez family and all. The other really compelling thing was the omit was was that in the in the the White House's statement, it was still very much focused on this regime change stuff that they've been pushing for so many years, uh, which has been a non-starter as a policy. I think everybody knows that Venezuela is going to continue its evolution with the swings in one way or the other way. It's going to it's going to continue its evolution, and that certain times we're not going to like it. But the more that the more that we start conditioning everything on certain political outcomes rather than political processes, I think we get ourselves into the old trap that really the pre- predates the Bush-Cheney administration, but became uh, front and center policy during that period of time. And I think we need to move away from that, just as we would hope that Venezuelans would move away from some of their uh, some of their unhelpful approaches. I do want to clarify the condolences area. I know that it was lacking the condolences we've talked about, but I do think that there was some statement in the White House statement that reached out to the Venezuelan people, um, maybe not the, as strong as a condolence. The, the Venezuelan people as agents of political change. With that particular note, and since we're talking about starting the reset button, um, the Maduro administration at least has started out with with sending two Americans home this week, uh, saying that they were trying to foment this political change. Um, um, I believe two defense attaches were sent home um, by the Venezuelans this week. So not exactly a sign that the reset button is being started in Caracas. Yep, that's, that's I think, the point that we're both making, too. Well, let's move on from those particular points to maybe the potential after this election 
for there to be the reset button pressed. We know there has to be an election sometime in the next 30 days that the Venezuelans are following the rules. Uh, Roughly a month from now, there will be an election. All likelihood is that the um, candidate of the opposition will again be um, Capriles, who ran in October uh, against Chavez and got 44% of the vote. Uh, In the end, I'm expecting that it will be a heated campaign. It will be a campaign um, in which the candidates will not treat each other well. There will be a lot of name-calling. And I'm guessing that in the end, Maduro will win by a considerable margin, uh, drawing both on the popularity um, of the Chavista project. Um, It's done very well electorally. Uh, and on the government's um, control of social spending and a number of other resources at its disposal, plus a sympathy vote. No, I, I agree. I think that we who do analysis on a complex situation like Venezuela often try to look for the fundamental drivers of, of a situation, and then we like to talk about fundamental change. I'm, I'm not sure whether we're going to necessarily see fundamental change regardless of the outcome, because even the Capriles people and the opposition people know that certain of the accomplishments or changes in the political culture that have taken place in the last 13, 14 years are, are going to continue, including some, some things that are, might be controversial in Washington, like the presence uh, and, and apparently very good services of Cuban doctors and stuff like that. So even if the opposition wins, who knows what what changes are going to happen and which are the fundamental ones. But there is a series of fundamental drivers that are that are at play right now. The fact is that the fund one of the fundamental drivers for the last 14 years was this particular individual, his ideology, his charisma, his incredible um, uh, energy and stuff. And I think that the one fundamental thing we have to be looking at is there anybody of the opposition or of his his residual party, which was really not a, a very functional party, if anybody is going to be able to fill that vacuum or that void, because Maduro is not Chavez. Let me go back to the point that you made about the Cuban doctors, because earlier on this program, one of our guests talked about that being a fundamental key point of an advance that the Chavez government put forward to to help, not just with, with health care, uh, but bringing Cubans in to help with with illiteracy and, and, and other programs, social programs that were there is something that um, large parts of the Venezuelan state su- seems to support. Um, is this going to continue, do you think, to be a controversy going forward? Controversy where? In Caracas? Or no, in certainly not in Caracas, but, but, but more in Miami and Washington, D.C. It's not controversial in Venezuela. That was my point, that even a Capriles administration probably would continue most of those programs. The question is in Washington. I think that in Washington, that's going to stick in Washington's craw and could keep us from pushing the reset button. Some have said that that one of the legacies of uh, Hugo Chavez is highly politicizing all of the institutions in Venezuela. I would point out, though, that it wasn't exactly paradise before Chavez. uh, And there are a number of governments, including governments with which we have had extremely close, cordial relations over the years that also have these, quote, rule of law uh, issues and weak institutions and all of that. Chavez was unique in the speed with which he had done it, but also the speed of the collapse 
of the opposition, including the opposition's credibility and the ideologies of the opposition as well. So he had sort of an unimpeded um, route uh, to do that. Not to sound a little, not to sound too weird about things, but there are also people here in Latin America. I'm calling you from Costa Rica right now. People who wonder sort of where's U.S. rule of law um, headed when the Supreme Court two weeks ago wouldn't hear any a single case of the Bush-Cheney wiretap, um, illegal wiretap uh, uh, suits because people couldn't demonstrate harm. The reason people couldn't demonstrate harm was because everything remains highly classified. Thank you very much, Eric Hirschberg and Fulton Armstrong, both of American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. Join us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Great to be with you. Latin Pulse is now on Mixler webcasting at 2100 hours GMT on Fridays. That's 1600 hours U.S. Eastern Standard Time. Our Mixler webcasts include weekend retrospectives. Latin Pulse is also available elsewhere on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs of Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.